Welcome to the Making Waves at Sea Level podcast with your host, Tom Singer. In each episode, we will explore the interesting stories of business executives, entrepreneurs, and industry leaders who are shaking things up and growing their companies. It is time to make some waves. Now here's your host, Tom Singer. Hey there, you have found your way to another episode of Making Waves at Sea Level. I have been doing this show for over six and a half years. Of course, it was originally called Cool Things Entrepreneurs Do, but the show has continued. It's grown. I've interviewed so many thought leaders about different things that it's really sort of become my own personal university where I have access to really smart people who are doing cool things and making waves in the business world. And today we're going to have one of those shows where we're talking with somebody who I admire so much. Her name is Kate O'Neill. She is an author. She is a thought leader. And she helps people prepare, uh, helps companies prepare for how do you make tech and humanity come together? Because sometimes tech can be overwhelming. So we'll talk a little bit more about that. But first, I have something I'd like to tell you all to check out. And that is another podcast. And you're thinking, Tom, why would you promote another podcast? Well, I'm the host of several podcasts, and the newest one is called Speakernomics. It is the new podcast of the National Speakers Association, and we have just started releasing it in January 2021, and it is full of ideas on how to make more money and build a better business if you use the spoken word in your career. That's not just for professional speakers. It's facilitators, it's trainers, it's coaches, it's podcasters. It's anyone who speaks as a way to promote who they are and what they do. So go check out Speakernomics. You can get it anywhere you get your podcast love. All right. So Kate O'Neill, welcome to Making Waves at Sea Level. Oh my gosh. After that, so much energy in your intro. I feel like I can just come rushing into the room with you. I'm so excited to be here. <laughs> so I, I just admire the work you do around technology and humanity. And I was trying to describe it and I, I don't even know how to do that properly. So could you tell us a little bit about, about the work that you've done? Yeah, sure. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a, an organic evolution because I've been in the technology space for 25 years. I was in around software and e-commerce and you know all sorts of, of emerging technology in a lot of different roles from um, building. I, I built the first content management role at Netflix uh, as one of the first hundred employees there. I built the first intranet at Toshiba. Uh, and it was like, those were early days. So there were a lot of firsts. Uh, and what I found, though, over the years was that one of the characteristics of me in my work was that I was always thinking about the user, about the customer, and that I was always the person, even if it wasn't explicitly in my job title, I was the person who was an advocate for the user and the customer in all of our discussions. But that didn't mean that I wasn't trying to help the company be successful, because to me, that was a both-and proposition. It was always about how can we figure out what the company is trying to do and how it aligns with people outside the organization, and how can we make those objectives align? And so that follows directly into the work that I'm doing now. So as a speaker, as an advisor, as an author, what I'm exploring is data and emerging technology and how it impacts humanity and the human experience. But more specifically, because business is responsible for building most of that technology, how to make business incentives align with human objectives outside the organization. So a lot of that is just helping think about experience strategy and interaction design, uh, but also thinking in, in big uh, sort of broad abstract ways about ethics and, and privacy. 
So before we got started recording, we were talking about certain companies in sort of the, the, the call it the digital video platform broadcast set. And some of them are very hard to figure out. And others of them are very user friendly. How come some companies totally miss the mark that it's a person who has to use your technology? And if you don't make it work the way their brain works, they're going to just scream and throw things at the wall. Yeah, you know, there's this <clears throat> this tendency, I think, for us to um, to center ourselves when we're creating solutions. Uh, I think that happens a lot in software design. I think it happens a lot everywhere. In fact, uh, it's something that as a writer, you're constantly reminded not to do that. You want to be thinking about the reader. You want to be thinking about how to create an experience that's authentic and that you're saying something that's meaningful to you, but that also meaning is something that is, is shared. So it has to be a communication that, uh, that makes sense to both you and the reader. And I think from a design standpoint, you know, we have to think about not just what's going to make sense taxonomically and ontologically to the company, you know, like we don't, we don't necessarily want to use company vocabulary to describe the functions of a piece of software or of a website or e-commerce system. We want to be thinking about what people are trying to do. I have a, a funny kind of example of this, like early days at Netflix. Um, we had just, I think we just came away from using the, there was a early logo of the purple film reel that was Netflix's logo way back when, back in like 98, I want to say. And so 99, 2000 time frame, they commissioned a big design firm to redo the, the brand logo. And they unveiled it at the, a big company meeting. We all got new business cards and new stationery and everything. And it was terrible. <laughs> it was this weird rounded square box kind of design and the back of the business card had this kind of like uh, gray static imagery and it was clearly meant to suggest like the TV like you were watching your movies on the TV and I think they thought the designers thought that they were connoting the value of being at home the com convenience and comfort of being at home while you watch movies but that's not what people were were really trying to do they were trying to watch movies they were trying to have a movie experience and so with the insights that sort of around two of scrapping all of that and saying, all right, let's go back and figure out what is it that people are actually trying to experience here. They understood better that it was really about that sort of archetypal movie experience. And so then came the, the, uh, the iconic sort of red ticket stub and red uh, movie theater curtains sort of thing. And, you know, there's a lot more of that imagery and iconography that's in, embedded in the brand history at this point over the last 20 some years. But it took that one failed effort of saying like, you know, oh, let's go for what people really care about. And it's like, oh, no, that's that's what we care about. That's not what they care about. What they care about is the movie piece of the experience, not the at home piece of the experience. So I love how broad your work goes, because we started off talking about sort of the technology itself and how designers design. And we often see the world through our own eyes, no matter what we do. That's why, you know, jargon and lingo happens, because we see things the way we see it. And we assume, well, everybody knows that. I mean, we do that in the professional speaker world. We, you know, other yes. people are like, what does that mean? Because we come up with our own language for how things happen at meetings and what we do. But I also like the way you took it back like, to look. Like we care about the distinction between lectern and podium and no one else does. There is not a regular human being on the planet who would correct you for saying lectern or podium in the wrong way. And yet in our world, if you say, oh, I was up at the podium, they go, well, technically that would be a lectern. Yeah, that would be a lectern. Actually. 
So, but but you took it all the way to logo design. So this yeah. is a very broad thing. This connection to humanity is is very very big. So let's go back to your early days at Netflix because this was this was pre streaming. This was when yeah. why go to Blockbuster? We'll mail you the movies. Um, what was that like? And you were up against you were up against a behemoth that was in every single strip mall on every single corner. What was, what was that even like to work there? Yeah, so I joined the company just as they were sunsetting the a la carte rental program because they had just figured out the monthly subscription program where it was like I had joined I joined as a customer when it was a la carte rental. And so many people don't realize that 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 Netflix had that origin, that it was actually doing the rentals by mail one off, you know, one at a time instead of saying like you're paying 10 or 15 bucks or whatever a month and you can get three or four at a time. And and I want to interject there. The subscription model is now what everybody is looking for. But if you go back, I mean, 20 years, you're talking about 22 years. I mean, the subscription, what what's a subscription model for for a service? People didn't that was not ubiquitous. Yeah, and that's what convinced me to reach out to them because I thought they really are onto something so smart and they've cracked this nut. Uh, so I sent my resume over and I just said, look, I don't know what you need, <laughs> but I have a bunch of different skills and I'd be happy to use any of them for you. Just like figure something out for me and let me go. And so they did. They found me a role. Uh, I was the, the first ever content manager. Uh, it was a really fun role. It was this hybrid of database management and editorial. So uh, a little bit, it's exactly like me, right? It's a, I'm, I'm a linguist by education, but I'm a technologist. And so I think a lot about these hybrid areas of language and communication and, and, and editorial and writing, but also about systems and architecture and how we kind of design the relationships between entities in the background and to make those accessible and, and create good user experiences. So it was really cool to be there in those early days just after they discovered the subscription model, just as they were sunsetting this a la carte rental program. And the future looked really, really bright, except, as you say, um, you know, it was the, the, the blockbuster behemoth in the ecosystem. And we were like, you know, that's who we're going to. We're going to fight them. We're going to get them. And what I think is really exciting, you know, this this being a show for C-suite leaders, I think this is the most ex- inspiring piece of this entire story for me. And I, I bring this up a lot with my C-suite clients. That The fact that at that time, and this is like, I want to say 2000, <clears throat> that Reed Hastings, the CEO, is looking ahead and saying, you know what, what we need to do is not only win this DVD subscription war, we need to be prepared for what's coming in the next few years, the, the step beyond that. And so at that time, the discussion was all around set top boxes. That was the discourse that we had for what would become streaming. Um, but the predecessor to that was thinking about set top boxes. So it was Roku and, you know, it, it's ilk, right? So this is in 2000, there's research and development money and effort being funneled, uh, uh, set aside, <clears throat> And put put into research towards set-top boxes and current-day streaming. And I just think that's profound that in a time when you're by no means the leader in the space, you're this upstart who, you know, is barely, you're, you're still striving to get a million subscribers at that point. 
And you're saying, you know what, we're going to not only win against Blockbuster, but we're going to have the next thing after that. And it wasn't until 2006 that Roku came out as its own product. And it wasn't until 2007 that there was a dedicated streaming plan. So that's six, seven years of Horizon to be able to see as the visionary CEO, this is what we're going to invest in. This is where we're going to spend some resources and some effort on being sure we're ready to land when that thing comes. And that's why you see Netflix have the market dominance that it does and why it has the, the brand presence and prestige that it does is because they have been so ahead of it and they have been such a leader in the space. The experience is strong. You know, when you go in there, they were the ones that really got us binging. <laughs> you know, they were the ones who figured out the whole continue watching thing and, and uh, just skipping right ahead to the next video and, and keeping you going. Uh, that You know, they have so many little tricks that they've embedded into the system for better or worse, right? Like there's, there's, <laughs> there's some bad things we could say about what that's done to us and in, in our health and our culture. But I think that what you cannot say about that is that they haven't been leaders and haven't been visionaries. And so I think that that's incredibly inspiring. So there's two things I love about what you just shared with us. And the one is the Netflix story. Of course, we all know it. Blockbuster went away. Netflix came in. But I love the part where they were looking, hey, we're not just winning this battle. What's the next one? How do we get ahead to this desktop streaming? And then another piece of that is somewhere along the line, they said, let's create our own content. And they weren't the first non-movie studio to necessarily do that, but they were the first to really, you know, I mean, you can say HBO, but, but HBO was a little different than Netflix. So for Netflix to make that leap, they really did a great job right out of the gate of saying, let's create our own content. And by the way, it's going to be great content. Right. And so, you know, again, that was thinking farther ahead than how do we just stream? It's how do we do this? And it's, I, I think the story of Netflix is, is a great one. And it must have been cool in the early days to be around people who were thinking the way they were thinking. Yeah, I, I th- it was. And I also think that, you know, what's what's become famous about Netflix uh from a an organizational standpoint is that culture deck that that um, uh, Reed Hastings and Patty McCord put together. Uh, and that has gone on to shape the cultures of many, many Silicon Valley startups since and beyond Silicon Valley, I'm sure. Um, what what I would have to say about that is that it was very true, even before that that deck was committed to uh, pixels, I guess. <laughs> it, was, uh, it was very true. There were many cases in which, in, in fact, Patty McCord guided me through a couple of difficult, difficult management decisions that I had to make uh, where I found myself in her office going like, wringing my hands and going, Patty, help me. I don't know how to manage this situation. <laughs> and her giving me very wise guidance. So there was a lot of great, strong leadership. But I think the thing that, that really uh, makes Netflix such an interesting story on every level, organizationally, culturally, you know, brand-wise, experientially, is that it always continued to have that focus on aligning the business objectives with the customer experience. And that piece, again, comes back fully to what I find myself doing, you know, 20-some years later in my consulting and advising work and my speaking work, is trying to help leaders think about you know, even now with the, the big focus on digital transformation these days uh, through COVID and beyond COVID, a lot of it tends to start in this very tech-centric discussion. Uh, leaders want to talk about what technology should we be investing in? What should, we, what should our AI strategy be? What should our automation strategy be? 
And that's exactly the wrong place to start this discussion. It should 100% be about what your company exists to do and is trying to do at scale and what the people that are outside your organization are trying to do with your company and what they, what they need, what their objectives are and what they, how they benefit from you making it easier to do what they're trying to do. And so, then once so you, I, sorry, I, no, I want to unpack that, but I have two yeah. things first. One is okay. I have to, I said there were two things about Netflix, your story. Oh, oh yeah. And, and so <laughs> I, I don't want to go, I don't want to skip where we're going. But uh, the first thing I want to touch on is I want to make sure that everyone listening also picked up on the fact of the way you ended up at Netflix. You sort of bloop, right by that. <laughs> and that was they were making changes. They were looking forward. They were being thought leaders. They they came up with this idea of let's let's trash this and put in this subscription model. And you said, wow, that looks interesting. So huh. I reached out to them for a job. And yeah. I think that's something that both the executives who listen to the show and the people who want to grow their careers who listen to the show, that's a win on both sides. As an executive, is there someone creative you know, who's thinking, who's out of the box, who's saying, I see you and I want to be part of it. That's awesome. And then to the, the, the worker, the person is, do you see someone? Are you reaching out saying, is there, is there a place for me in your organization? I want to touch on that really quick. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's really interesting that, uh, for me, and I certainly, I don't hold myself in the same, at the same level of, you know, Reed Hastings or his co-founder, Mark Randolph. But I think it's interesting that now there's a, a, a keynote event or an event that's happening at the end of the month where I'm keynoting the event and Mark Randolph is the other keynoter at the event. And it sort of feels like this really beautiful symmetry. A, pat- a pattern I, of circles, I call that. Yeah. A pattern of circles. Around. I like that. Yeah. It feels like a way in which, um, you know, there's some closure, there's some, some lifting, some, you know, elevation of, of just good ideas and, and good people. I'd like to, I'd like to compliment myself to think that I'm a good enough person that I I have worked my worked for this. So it's a nice thing to see that there's not only, of course, it's funny that there's two former Netflix employees keynoting one event that has nothing to do with Netflix, but that, you know, our paths have crossed again and that there's, you know, kind of this celebration in the industry for, for what has come through, through that place and through that pipeline. And yeah, I do think that there's something really valuable about the process of, uh, you know, having run my own companies, um, Whenever someone has been enthusiastic about what I'm trying to do, uh, you know, why not and bring them into the fold? You know, like what, what can they do for me? What can I do for them? How can we, you know, feed off of that energy and that enthusiasm and how can they bring their ideas and knowledge and expertise uh, or maybe it's not expertise yet. Maybe it's too young to be expertise, but what they want to be their expertise. How can we help cultivate them? How can we help shape them and send them on their way to go create that good things in the world? Oh, I just, I just thought that was an awesome piece of your story. And Thank I wanted you. to, I wanted to make sure everybody heard that <laughs> I saw they were doing cool things. I reached out, they created a position for me. That's a total win for everybody involved. So the other thing I need to do before we dive into the work you're doing now is I need to thank the sponsor of this episode. So this episode is brought to you by Podfly Productions. Podfly, they take the time and the headache out of creating your own podcast. At Podfly, they set you up with the right equipment, training, and guidance to ensure that you're going to sound amazing They do all the heavy lifting and that pesky technical work so that you can focus on creating great content, growing your audience, and interviewing people who are making waves in business like Kate O'Neill. 
hey, if you want to start a podcast, and I know, I know that some of you do, because ever since the pandemic, everyone who breathes air wants to start a podcast. You need to right now, well, at the end of this show, jump over to podfly.net slash cool things and check out the offer that they have for the listeners of this show. So, Kate, I call the show Making Waves at Sea Level, and I think your work really helps companies shake things up and, and make a splash. And so you were talking about companies being able to look at, at not just the technology we use, but but how is our product used? What is the problem we solve? And at scale, how are mm-hmm. people using it to solve those problems? So let's dive into this work that you're doing, the new book that you're bringing out, et cetera. Yeah, so the the interesting thing about these last few years is that my work has been focused on this concept of tech humanism. That was the, the last book. My, my most recent book was called Tech Humanist. Uh, and that has been all about, there, there's sort of a three-pronged um, philosophy there. One is that uh, human experiences are increasingly shaped by technology um, and that Second thing is that business is primarily what shapes technology. And then that also technology is primarily uh, about business incentives, uh, built around business incentives, but that we're going to be increasingly having our world shaped by it. So it's sort of a a perfect little symmetry and like a three-point syllogism in a sense that, that once you start thinking about that and unpacking it, it sort of has all sorts of consequences and all sorts of implications for how experiences should be designed and how businesses should be building the incentives within their businesses. So that's been a very interesting phase of my of my work. But what's also been interesting in that is that, number one, it has brought up, an, it already had within it an incredible amount of discussion of digital transformation. I, I present the idea of human-centric digital transformation within the book Tech Humanist. Um, but I, I have found more and more, of course, through COVID, uh, there's been an incredible interest in digital transformation. At the same time, there's been an interest in um, how to navigate rapidly changing landscapes and exponential change just in general. Because when you think about it, we're dealing with uh, the, the changes that AI and a robotic process automation sort of landscape brings about to the future of work and the future of jobs and the future of the workplace. Uh, we're dealing with the um, exponential changes due to climate change and the climate catastrophe. We're dealing with uh, geopolitical changes and, you know, sort of these overall cultural movements, you know, toward nationalism, autocracy, and so on. Like, there's there's kind of these very interesting intersecting and interconnected upheavals that are happening, um, not to mention, I mean, there's, there's so many others when you start unpacking it. So I think what a lot of people in, in leadership positions are, are feeling is, um, we can deal with, well, I should say, of course, the pandemic, right? Like that, I had mentioned it, but that's another one of those exponential changes. And so I think what people are in leadership positions are often feeling is we can deal with one of these things. We could maybe sort of see our way through to building a roadmap that anticipates how do we, you know, have the right resources in place to deal with change at one kind of exponential scale. But what about when there's intersecting exponential scales? And that is what I'm finding to be a very 
interesting need um, to unpack with with leaders. So I've developed. Oh, sorry, go ahead. Even I was going to say. So say. I, I was going to say. So how do companies deal with this? Because yeah. you you listed off like four or five, you know, serious rapid changes that are right. happening in our in our society that directly impact business. But there's a lot yes. of them. <laughs> that's that's yes. a lot of things going on, Kate. It is a lot of things. It's a lot of things. <laughs> so what I've found is there is a model uh, that I've built, and it's a model that uh, that has helped me personally get through changes in my own life, but that I've, I, I've had, you know, surely this more personally reflective philosophical model doesn't have any relevance on a business leadership level, but it does actually. And, and the more I've tested it and the more I've applied it in, in a, a sort of rigorous way, it, it has incredible applicability. So I've developed this model of strategic optimism, and it's the idea that, the, you know, strategy, there's this kind of cliche phrase that hope is not a strategy, which it is not. It's true. That hope by itself is not a strategy. However, you know, pessimism isn't a strategy either. <laughs> so hope at least tells you what you're trying for. Hope gives you some idea of the direction you are trying to move in. And so it may not be a strategy, but it is a clue about what your strategy should be. And so I feel like there's there's this way in which hope or optimism in general and strategy uh, sort of have a natural interplay. And I think once we recognize what those the levers with between them are and how we actually use one to inform the other and how we can um, take a, a, a look at the future that is optimistic, but informed by insights and informed by data and informed by real world factual knowledge. Uh, and, and we have a full picture of all the possibilities that are in front of us. Then we choose to move in the most optimistic direction that aligns with what our strategy is. That's the approach. And, and I think I'm finding that it's resonating with, with um, some of the top, the biggest clients that I work with, as well as some of the smallest. And it's, it's very human, I think. Well, it feels very human. And I, I love the term strategic optimism. But as you were talking, I, I, I was kind of running pessimism and optimism through the filter of my brain. And one of the things I realized is those who traditionally have moved us forward have been those who have been optimistic. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, Churchill came to mind in the fact that it was pretty bleak for England uh, during the 1940s and, and during the war. And yet Churchill always told the people they would overcome. They were being bombed. They were living in the subway stations at night. It must have sucked. And yet he yeah. always had this attitude in his speeches and the things he said of optimism. And so that was one of the first things that came to my mind. And then the second thing that came to my mind was entrepreneurs who have changed the world, like, you know, Gates or Jobs, or we can make the list extremely long, uh, your friends at Netflix. They had to be optimistic to be able to do that because you're essentially changing the way people are going to behave, the way they're going to go off of, you know, purchasing a product or in introducing new products. And so the, the true change makers of our society have almost always, I'm sure someone will come back and go, no, Tom, here's the negative pessimist who did that. Yes, <laughs> there are outliers everywhere. But if you really start looking, the people who've made great changes and who have saved and recreated society over centuries have always been optimists, right? Yeah, I think so. I, but I think there's also, there are people who have pushed back on optimism because they feel like, well, number one, it feels like it's a tool of, uh, of the naive, it's folly, you know, or that, um, 
uh, I think one of the more legitimate criticisms of optimism that I've gotten since I began putting this concept out there is that it is uh, scorned for willfully ignoring real world harms. And I think that's a legitimate criticism, but what I find is that what my model is supposed to do is actually acknowledge those harms. And doesn't so, strat- by putting strategy with exactly. optimism, doesn't it solve that problem just by that's nature of the two words? 100% why I, I describe myself as an optimistic futurist, but I always have to have that little caveat in there. It has to be strategic optimism. It has to be a very clear-eyed understanding of and like a survey of the real landscape and what the real situation is. So clear-eyed, inclusive, and as aligned with success as possible and as achievable as possible. Uh, that Doing it that way is almost a guarantee of success. It's at least a, a guarantee that you're going to do better than you would have done if you had dwelt in the land of negativity or of, of sadness, you know. So as as we wrap this up, and I know the book won't be out for a little while, but the mm-hmm. what what tips do you have around strategic optimism that you can give business leaders, maybe one or two that you that they could put into play today? Yeah, I love this. One of the things that um, I, I did an article actually. There's if if you look for it, you can find an article a while back on um, American Express Open about optimism in in leadership. And uh, one of the tips that I had shared there was, uh, and I was quoted and I didn't write it. I just want to be clear. <laughs> so, uh, one of the tips I had shared there was, I think we deal a lot in um, what could go wrong. And that's very smart to do that. You know, whenever we start a new project or launch a new brand or a program, we think a lot about what could go wrong and we build contingencies around that. What we don't do often enough is think about what could go right. And we don't necessarily build contingencies for that. And what I think the the loss there is that we don't think about what happens, number one, if things go wildly right and you haven't built the scale to be able to deal with it. So we've seen many of those kinds of situations in in, uh, Silicon Valley and startups where, you know, you put something out there and then there's just too much demand, there's too much uptake of it, and then it shuts down the servers or something like that. That's a good thing. It's a world-class problem to have, but it's not a good thing for the people who are trying to experience this thing that you're excited to have them experience. So one of the things that, that, that you can actually do is have your team think about, like, what if this succeeds beyond our wildest dreams? Like, how do we make sure that we're setting ourselves up for success at that level? And then also you get to think about things like, you know, what if it goes well and we get to think about the next step beyond that? And then you're starting to move yourself in a direction that almost ensures that that's where you're going to go. God, I wish my brain worked like yours does. I've I've taken (laughs) notes just from the standpoint of my own career. I've taken notes around, you know, this whole idea of strategic optimism and and, you know, things like, you know, obviously I have to quote you, but, uh, you know, what you said for one of my clients is exactly what the client needs to hear. And I'm like, oh, perfect. I wish my brain had just thought of that on its own, but that's, that's oh, absolutely no, I'm so glad. So, I'm so glad it's relevant. So Kate, we could talk for hours and we have, of course. The, we have before, but, uh, <laughs> I, if somebody's listening to this and they're like, yeah, I need to know about more of Kate O'Neill, how do they find you? Uh, koinsights.com is uh, my company website which is also and cool because it's like a double entendre because it's like knock, yeah. knockout insights I like the K- <laughs> KO insights I dig that when I first set it up someone asked me what, was it all about the knockout or something and I was like what I didn't even <laughs> catch it oh first. I thought uh, sorry I thought you knew that when you named it 
<laughs> but now I, now I can pretend I, like I can yeah, play it off. <laughs> never. After, the last place you ever say it is on this spot. Never tell anybody ever again that that wasn't the plan. Oh, yeah. I'm it's way a double, too honest. Double entendre, baby, all the way. <laughs> I'm way too honest not to own up to that. <laughs> no, koinsights.com uh, is the company website. You can also find me on Twitter where I'm prolific uh, at Kate O. Of course, on all the social media, including Clubhouse, we're increasingly spending our time there. I see, I see you there a lot, Tom. Yeah, Clubhouse <laughs> has been interesting. I've been telling people that it's put the social back in social uh, media because uh, I have met more people. I have had more people on my podcast because I've listened to really smart things they've said. I mean, you and I have been yeah. friends for years, but I saw you on Clubhouse and I'm like, I need to have her on the podcast. Uh, so I've found a very social element to it. I also know from having been involved in social media for a long time that this too will jump the shark at some point. <laughs> yeah. Well, everybody's all excited about Twitter spaces. And I think that that does make a lot of sense. There's, there's um, an interesting way that that could build into, you know, platforms we've already built out and, and the taxonomies of our interests and so on. So that could be cool. But yeah, I, I'm all of those social media, you will find me and you will find me at my website. There's, there's also um, some great stuff coming out there about articles and blogs that I'm writing that are leading up to the new book. So if you're interested in that strategic optimism, the, the book uh, is, is called A Future So Bright. And um, that will be, I hope, out about um, third, third or fourth quarter of this year. I don't have an exact date yet. Awesome. Well, Kate, your future is so bright. I have to wear shades <laughs> while I'm doing this interview. Thank you so thank much you. for joining us. And thank you to everybody who tuned in and listened. I say it every episode, but it is so true. If it wasn't for the audience, why would we even do the show? So this is all for you. Uh, I did say at the beginning, it's like my own personal college, but I love to share it with everybody. And if you like the show and you listened this far, make sure you tell a friend about it. When I talk to people who listen, I say, how did you ever find my podcast? And they're like, my mother, my brother, my boss, my friend, somebody told them about it. So word of mouth is the most powerful tool that's out there. But don't get me wrong. I'd love it if you'd go over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review. Uh, in the meantime, we'll be back in a couple of days with somebody else who's making waves. But between now and then, I want you to go out there, flex your entrepreneurial business muscles, make sure that your career ladder is against the right wall. Because I spent a, long, a lot of time climbing that ladder and it was in the wrong place. Don't do that. And while you're at it, have some fun. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to the Making Waves at Sea Level podcast. Without your listening to these in-depth conversations, there would be no show. Connect with Tom at TomSinger.com and follow him on Twitter and Instagram at TomSinger. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.